0: Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: Hi, I'm Mika Simmons, and you're listening to the Happy Vagina podcast. Coming up, we have inspirational Korean chef Judy Ju, who shares about her endometriosis diagnosis, her subsequent egg freezing experience, and how she uses food to heal. This episode has been kindly supported by ABC IVF, the UK's lowest cost IVF clinic. Fertility preservation at the right age is not an easy decision and there are multiple reasons women choose to do so. But for many, the price can be a huge hurdle. ABC IVF want to make egg freezing an option to as many women as possible, not just those with deep pockets. If you are 37 or under, an all-inclusive egg freezing package costs just £3,595, which includes everything you will need, including medication and the first year's storage. If you've been thinking about taking control of your fertility, why not book an assessment with ABC IVF so you can better understand your fertility health and plan for your future? Just go to www.abcivf.co.uk and book your fertility assessment today. That's www.abcivf.co.uk. Welcome to The Happy Vagina, a podcast dedicated to celebrating pioneers in the female space who have made a difference in women's health, equality and relationships. Each week, we chat to an inspiring human being as they explore the experiences that completely change their outlook, promising not only to educate, but also entertain and enlighten. And today, we are joined by the absolutely inspirational ex-Wall Street trader who turned her back on finance to become a chef – Korean restaurateur, Judy Ju. Judy, welcome to The Happy Vagina. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so excited to be on your podcast. Thank you for having Oof. me. Everybody says that until I say, what comes next <laughs> is The Happy Vagina quiz. <laughs> yeah, my vagina. I like talking about my vagina. Oh, you do? Yeah, it's a good thing. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> and we are going to do a deep dive into your vagina. Before we do, let's get a bit frivolous and have some fun and do the vagina quiz. It's very binary. It's pretty basic, but we love it as a way to open a chat. Okay. Judy, question one, brief or G-string? G-string. Ah, interesting. Yeah. Any reasons? I don't like panty
0: lines. Mm. Yeah. I, um, I just live in thongs. G-strings, thongs. Yeah. I think I have like, four pairs of briefs and
1: there were kind of period panties. Oh, commando. Sometimes I just, you can't with a leg in, but sometimes I do like to be completely pant free. Yeah.
0: Sometimes you can't do it often because that's not good for your happy vagina. What, to not have knickers on? Yeah. You're supposed to have like a cotton breathable crotch or something because it can lead to yeast infections. If you're wearing a skirt, I think it's fine,
1: but I don't know if you want, if you want to do that, but. Uh, so if we ever decide to go and like, Create the commune where we all like go off grid and check out and wear a sarong all day long. That's fine. Pant free is fine. That's fine, yes. But if you're gonna wear a pair of wool trousers, tights, it's better to have a cotton gusset to protect the vulva yes. from the toxins or just the, the the ick. I think it's a good time to use the mm-hmm. word ick.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: That's why a lot of
0: um tights and stuff come with a cotton mm. crotch, because it's it's breathable. Yeah, you need a nice natural fabric down there.
1: I've given up wearing tights in the pandemic of you. I don't
0: even want to put a bra on these days. I mean, <laughs> I like struggle <laughs> with a uh, basic stuff like that. Same, and, then, and I'm not really endowed,
1: so I don't really need to wear a bra. So I don't really have to worry about too much support. You're perfect, so, just yeah. as you are. Next question <laughs> of perfection from you is Brazilian. Or
0: Bush. Oh, total Brazilian. Had that lasered off ages ago. You did. Ages ago. Yeah.
1: That's interesting. I tried it, but because I'm blonde, it didn't really work. So as a Korean woman... The laser worked well. They
0: said I was a dream because I'm pale. Like the paler your skin is and the darker your hair, the better it works. So it was like two times and it was gone.
1: Yeah. I mean, that is just a scene out of some kind of like comedy <laughs> movie, isn't it? Like you win. Yeah. You win for being the best, best uh, uh, bikini line <laughs> laser receiver. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> Question three, menstrual cup or tampon? Oh, tampon. Yeah. Organic. Well, you
0: don't really care. The Playtex ones, because they expand this way, you know, more like vertically. No, I don't know about this. Say some more. Yeah, they they have like a little bit of a different absorption structure you know, you know, like OB kind of expands more like horizontally a bit more, whereas Tampax gets like really long, you know, when you pull out. I don't don't even
1: know what these brands are you are talking about. What is Playtex and OB? Oh gosh, this is
0: like American. I, I know. Well, OB is the one without the applicator. That's like mostly in like continental Europe when you can't find a tampon with an applicator. Now it's, it's a bit different, but, um, those you have to use your fingers, you have to like, which I'm not a fan of, but because, like, you always said, make sure your fingers are very clean, but they do work very well and they kind of expand um, almost like an umbrella and they kind of like open and, and I feel they kind of let less leakage through. And the Playtex brand, which maybe is just available American, kind of does the same, whereas Tampax gets longer. And when you pull it out, it's like, you know, six inches or something (laughs) versus like, you know, and so I think that one's a little bit more prone to leaking, but who's to say, yeah.
1: That's so interesting. I'm going to hunt those brands down and give them a go. Thank you so much for enlightening me. Meet Judy Jew, your new host of the Happy Vagina (laughs) Podcast. (laughs) Not all tampons are created equal. (laughs) Not all tampons are created equal. We are going to talk about your career on Wall Street and then moving over to being a chef. Have you thought about a career in advertising, Judy? I
0: know. Gosh, (laughs) seriously. When you have heavy periods, you are all over which brands are the best and you kind of know like which ones you can use and yeah.
1: And we are going to come to that because actually you are a woman. You are a woman who has endometriosis. So actually that puts a little bit of a framework around your explorations with the different utensils. Absolutely. Let's move on to the next question. G spot or clitoral? Oh, I think G spot. Different type of orgasm. Yeah. It's a different type of sensation.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Deeper for me. Everybody's different. Yeah.
1: And my final question, Mm -hmm. which is of the same milk is vibrator or hand?
0: Oh, vibrator.
1: Interesting.
0: But again, not all vibrators are created equal.
1: Please expand. I feel like everything I say is a pun, but just say a little bit more about, for you personally, what it is about vibrators you love. Well, um, do you... Are you familiar with the Womenizer? Well, I know Lily, Alan. Okay, there you go. (laughs) It's the suction one, right? It's the one that you put on the clitoris and it sucks. Considering you just told me that you prefer the G-spot, I was expecting you to talk about, like, you know, the wand massager that you put up inside of you and you find the G-spot. Yeah, that's like... Because it's not...
0: I don't know you got to get the right angle and I can't seem to get the right angle with that you know so if I'm doing it on my own it's probably just like you know get it done quick and simple get it done you know and then you know, it's, there's a specific time and purpose for something, you know, like the rabbit or something big that has, you know, rotational torque as well as, you know, girth and length and all of that stuff. Yeah. 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 The womanizer has that suction, which is scary at first, but you learn
1: to love it. Yeah. It's funny, isn't it? And also, as you know, I've just written the happy vagina book. Just plugging myself on my own podcast, don't mind me. In writing the book, I discovered... So I'm now basically hand and vibrator because in writing the book, I discovered about the blended orgasm. And the blended orgasm is one when you're stimulating the G-spot and the clitoris at the same time. Of course, we know that these things now are being scientifically proven to actually be part of the same complex mechanism. But I think now for me, both... So like you, I think if it's perfunctory and I, because having orgasms is extremely important for our mental Absolutely. health and also for our physical health and it releases certain hormones and it actually keeps us really sexually well and, and match fit. Not only does it mean that we're better in the bedroom because we know what we like and also we are, you know, less removed from the sexual experience, it, it also actually is a, is a necessity for our bodies to stay Juicy. I'm going to use the word juice. And so masturbation, super important. Clitoral, if you want to just kind of like get it out of the way, of course, that's not the highest of self-care. In the longer period of times where you might have a little bit more time, I highly recommend both and trying to find a blended orgasm, which is when you're stimulating your G-spot and your clitoris at the same time. That's fun.
0: Mm.
1: (laughs) Maybe I'll do that right after this. (laughs) Okay, good. Okay, good. <laughs> yes, well, I think that was um, 100% you got in the quiz, Judy. Thank you so much for sharing your, your intimate, intimate thoughts, feelings, and truths, which of course might change tomorrow because all of us change Absolutely. on a daily basis, which leads me beautifully into something that I read mm-hmm. that you said. Oh, okay. Which is, life is short but you always have time to reinvent yourself. Now, Judy, you started your career in finance, and that was because you felt it was the right thing to do because of your background, your family, potentially your cultural background. And then you reinvented yourself. Let's start at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Let's go back to what it was like for you working in a career that you didn't really want to be in.
0: I have to say that I was learning a lot and I liked my work colleagues. So there's a bit of that, but at the end of the day, I just didn't have a passion for it. And it felt like work, you know, it just, it just felt like having to drag my feet and having to do all the research. It felt like homework every single day. And I just didn't have a passion for all the financial journals and periodicals on the weekends and stuff. It just didn't have that kind of spark that, um, brought me, you know, joy and, and happiness. It was kind of like, I'm doing this to kind of get a paycheck and get through life. And it, it is a means to an end. And I was working all the time. You know, this is back in the days when finance was on fire, you know, money was growing on trees and it was fun, you know, expense accounts going out every single night, fancy dinners, strip clubs, all of that
1: stuff. Hang on a second. You can't throw that in there, Judy and not expect me to pick up on it. What do you mean strip? clubs. You enjoy strip clubs? I mean, it was,
0: it was part of the job, just going to strip clubs. Did you
1: enjoy it? Were you, or was it work? I it was fine. It was
0: fun. I didn't mind them. I thought mm. after a while, it's just like, ugh, you know, again, you know, you just kind of there again and again. And it's, um, but it's, it's mm. funny and fun. They're, they're quite silly, mm. honestly, like to some extent. What I found the most fun was when you go to the ladies room in a strip club, you're the only woman in there that's not working there. And the entire ladies room is basically set up like a makeup um, and hair and makeup, like salon and they have everything going on (laughs) and there's all this chit chat and whatnot. So you get to know the girls in in, in the ladies room. (laughs) And so that was kind of fun. Yeah. So I was working all the time. I think I took five days off and in the entire, you know, year, you know, just 24 seven all the time. And I was just burning out. So after five years of this, I was like, I just can't, sustain this. And I was working at that time in San Francisco. So New York market hours on the West coast. So waking up at 3am, having to get to work by 345, the latest. And, uh, I was chronically sick cause I was never sleeping. I was flying all over the place all the time, you know, dinner in Los Angeles, taking the last flight back, you know, still having to be in the office at 345 AM. Um, I had like chronic laryngitis and sinusitis. And, um, my now ex-husband was like, look, why don't you just do what you want to do? Quit. It's fine. And I was like, okay. And so I knew that I wanted to go into food. I never thought it would lead to what I'm doing now, but for me, you know, I knew I was like obsessed with the food industry. I loved restaurants. I loved cookbooks. I was always reading the magazines, um, you know, what was hot, um, what was a new opening and what were chefs were, were, were doing, watching cooking shows all the time. So for me, it was very clear that I wanted to go into it. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do in the industry,
1: but, um, yeah, I enrolled in cooking school and, and the rest is history. Such an inspirational story. And of course people could say, Oh, it's easy. If you've got the partner to support you or the financial backdrop to support you of course those things can make it easier but they can also make it more complicated and I think if we think about the life that we really want to have maybe someone isn't going to go and set up their own restaurant truth is being a restaurateur is like It's like the casino. It's quite a risky thing to be in. Oh, 100%. Whatever your your dreams are, I think that you can follow them, even if it's extracurricularly, outside of your work. You may not throw the towel in on your job. You might need your job where you're working, and you might not be in a position to leave, but go and get the hobby. Go and get the hobby that makes you feel like you can do it. And there are going to be people who are going to try and stop you. Was there anyone in particular? So your husband sounds like, your partner sounds like he was a champion for you. Was there anyone who tried to stop you from doing it? Were your family supportive? No, my
0: family were not supportive just because being a chef was considered a big downgrade and, uh, you don't necessarily, you know, go to a fancy university like an Ivy league school to, to become a chef. So they thought that they had, you know, worked so hard and sacrificed so much, um, you know, time, energy, money to give me this amazing education. And I was just downgrading my life in every way possible. Um, so they were not supported. And particularly in Korea, you know, becoming a chef is, is a very um, low class, low status job. You know, um, you, you don't even graduate high school. It's, it's a very vocational thing to do. You just, you know, start washing dishes and peeling potatoes and then you kind of become a chef. And so they didn't understand why, um, and rightfully so, you know, like why, why I wanted to take this path. They thought it was just kind of this, this, this little hobby. Um, which which it was in the beginning, you know, I think I I didn't take it as seriously as I probably should have. And it really took kind of my my marriage falling apart and my divorce kind of light that fire under my ass and give me that sense of urgency to to kind of take the hobby and be like, I've got to transform this into something where I can make it into a career and and make it lucrative.
1: Wow, that's so interesting. So it was losing the person that told you to leap that actually drove you. To get more ambitious. Yeah. Do you feel like maybe your family rejecting your choice and then your relationship breaking up? Did you feel like you were free falling?
0: Oh, definitely. I mean, my divorce, I say a lot, is like the best and the worst thing that happened to me all at once. You know, I never thought I would get divorced, it wasn't even part of my family's language. You know, and it was kind of ironic because my ex husband um, was encouraging me to follow my passion, but he wasn't a hundred percent interested in me working full time at, at all. You know, he really wanted me to kind of be a stay at home wife and I just couldn't, see that for myself. Um, particularly without kids, I was, it was just restless. So I was, I was itching to do something more. It was, it was a difficult time, you know, and I would say that I probably defined myself, um, through my ex-husband. I think a lot of women that, that, that happens, particularly when I wasn't working, um, full time, you know, I was kind of a bit of a, a dilettante just doing this and that or whatever, you know, part-time here, writing a little bit here, and when you go through a divorce, not only are you losing somebody, but you're losing a piece of yourself and a piece of your identity because you start identifying who you are as a couple and trying to find who you are as a single person again is is quite difficult and uh, and in my case i was with my ex husband since i was 25 years old so i didn't really know my adult life without him and i i kind of grew up with him by my side and it was an identity crisis to some extent as well were you scared oh my god i was i was yeah i was petrified i was a groveling crying pile on the floor and you know, I think that that's one thing that I think I owe to my, my parents and my mother, especially, is that she always taught me to be confident. And if you believe in yourself, you can do anything. I was just like, you know, I just have to go for this. And I kind of just threw myself into my work, um, as a type of therapy. Also, I just didn't want to think about stuff. And I realized that the busier I was, the less I'm going to think about things, which isn't entirely healthy, but, um, I think it's healthier than, you know, just falling into, into drugs, alcohol, and sex, or, you know, all of the above. Um, but I found work just to be kind of thera- therapeutic and also productive. And also, um, you know, when you, when you can actually have a result, there's something highly rewarding around that. And you just kind of keep chugging along, but it wasn't easy at all. You know, I mean, definitely free falling, definitely questioning everything, definitely crying a river Every night, you know, um, who am I? What am I doing? All of that.
1: I love the fact that you said that your mum really made you believe you could do anything. So did mine. Mm. Uh I was has there ever been a moment when your mum was questioning your choice of moving from being a banker in Wall Street oh, yeah. to being a chef where you went, but mum. You told me I could do anything. Yeah,
0: definitely. Definitely. I am,
1: your, I, I am the mold that you made, mom.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, Yeah, I say that to her a lot. I say, I learned it from you.
2: <laughs> yeah. I learned it from you.
0: Also, like, I think um, with immigrant parents, you know, their work ethic and their appetite for risk. You know, they kind of decided to leave their home country, not speaking a language, you know, picking up and not knowing anybody, have no friends. And my mom came alone to the United States. She didn't know anybody. She went to get a master's degree in chemistry, um, which is highly unusual because number one, women didn't travel alone. Number two, families in Korea were not educating their daughters back then. Um, so it was highly unusual. So she's like, you know, I'm getting out of here. And this is after the Korean War. Korea was a very, very poor country. She's like, I'm leaving this, you know, hellhole. I'm gonna just, you know, try my luck in this foreign land and ended up in Ohio of all places. And yeah, so she had that like appetite for risk and is like, I'm just gonna do it and go for it.
1: I was gonna ask that actually. I'm pleased that you mentioned the journey of your parents because this pressure on you to be in a profession and a financial profession specifically or at least one that would enable you to earn really well and be secure Mm -hmm. I don't think it's a stereotype I think it is actually embedded in some fact and I and, and I think it's to do with wanting a better future. Like your parents didn't, didn't feel disappointed in you wanting to be a chef for any reason, other than they were imposing their fear on you and their fears were real because they did experience those things.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Um, they are conservative and the conservative path, you know, I come from a family of doctors, you know, my father's a physician, uncles are physicians, all that stuff. And, you know, you picked the conservative safest route staple, you know, stability, stability and um, education is everything. You know, even though I didn't have nice clothes, nice shoes, nice cars, any of our family, we went to a nice school and, and that was the the value system is like, you work hard, you study hard and that's how you get yourself out of a situation.
1: Well, and of course, education, when we talk about privilege Mm -hmm. and finance bringing privilege, actually the truth is, is that really privileged. The deepest privilege is to have an education because that's what gives you opportunity. hundred percent, particularly for women,
0: I think, because we're always second guests. Um, it's nice to have an education and, and I'm grateful for my education. I'm grateful for, to my parents that they, you know, work their way mm. to America to, to get, you know, my sister and I to some of the best schools in the world. Yeah.
1: You also said, I'm going to quote you again. With every pivot of chaos, there is opportunity. And I feel like you're living, walking proof of that. You know, your, your marriage broke down. You've pivoted your career. You rose like a phoenix out of the chaos. But you've also had quite a chaotic time with your health, Judy. And yes, I think... One of the things I would love to start talking to you about is your diagnosis with endometriosis. I've I've really loved reading about how Korean food actually is
2: mm.
1: used as ways to heal. And, and we are going to come to that. But before we do, you know, in the UK, 1.5 million people have endometriosis, the average time of diagnosis is 10 years. And
0: I think that that's just underdiagnosed extremely. So many people have it and they don't know. And that's because you actually have to see it in order to know it. So unless you have laparoscopic surgery or something, it's very hard to diagnose unless you actually see it because the symptoms can be misinterpreted and, um, Diagnoses other
1: things yeah 190 million women worldwide that's 10 percent seriously you might drop 10 percent of the world's population and as you've just said it's a really difficult thing to diagnose and there's many many people like like many miscarriages do not get registered so we don't really know what the stats are on miscarriage but what were your first symptoms and signs and how old were you when you first started to actually acknowledge the fact that potentially your periods or your cycle was inflicting pain on you that was not normal?
0: Yeah. I mean, I've had so many gynecological issues. So I was born with a dermoid cyst in my ovary, which I had to get removed when I was in college.
1: Can you say what that is, a dermoid cyst?
0: Um, A a dermoid cyst. So I had an ovarian dermoid cyst. So it's located in, in, in your ovary and you're born with it. And basically it's called a dermoid cyst because it's basically full of all of the dermis matter, like skin matter. They have like teeth and hair in them and all this stuff. And basically it's formed when you're an embryo. And for whatever reason, it's stuff that's supposed to be discarded, but just kind of ends up... In some kind of like cysts in your body somewhere. Um, they're quite common in the ovaries. And so I had irregular periods and weird periods from my first period, old blood, you know, never had a cycle. You would get it and then not get it for six weeks and then get it for another two weeks later. It, it was never regular. Um, so I had that removed and Then my period started becoming more regular, but that surgery caused some scar tissue. And then I had an atopic pregnancy right after I was married. So I didn't even know I was pregnant and just collapsed. And, um, yeah, and just had internal bleeding. I'm very lucky to actually be alive because, uh, you know, I could have had very messy emergency rooms surgery, but it was, um, it wasn't so awful. But, um, I remember just sitting there and I was like, what is this? And, um, luckily my, my then husband was, was still at home. We made it, managed to get to the emergency room and it turned out I was six weeks pregnant, had no idea I was pregnant. <laughs> and, oh. and then, um, Um, After that, then um, my mother has a history of fibroids. And so I started having fibroids. And um, so that just leads to very heavy periods, really heavy periods. And it was during one of my fibroid surgeries to get them removed that. The doctor, the surgeon's like, and by the way, you also have endometriosis. But he didn't really say much about it. This is, this is my doctor here in the UK. And I think it's because he didn't really know much about it, I would say. And other than having a heavy period, I was pretty active. I didn't have symptoms otherwise. And people who have even stage one endometriosis a lot of time Mm -hmm. have awful back pain. They have terrible urinary problems, terrible uh, gastro problems in general. Um, You know. awful gas. like It affects anything that the endometriosis will grow on. So obviously your uterus is right next to your bladder, right next to your your digestive tract, your stomach. So if it grows on all of these organs, it's going to cause problems (laughs) within them and pain and, and bleeding. And then during your period, this uterine lining that's growing in other places obviously becomes inflamed and it flares up and is extremely painful women can't get out of bed, they can't stand up, you know, you can't go to work. But sometimes women are having flare-ups all the time, not even when they're having their periods. And this is where it really becomes a debilitating disease. And this is where I feel, and you touched on it before, where I feel diet is very important because um, anything that you eat that is inflammatory, that is difficult to digest is going to cause inflammation of the endometriosis and you're going to have a flare-up.
1: We're going to take a very quick ad break. And before we do, I wanted to let you know that this podcast was produced in association with Albright, the leading career network for women. Got a mission, a five-year plan, or an outrageous dream? Albright will have your back. They had mine. Visit www.albrightcollective.com to join their free community today or download the Albright app available in the App Store. Albright, a global sisterhood for ambitious women. Just going back to when the doctor said to you, oh, by the way, you have endometriosis, and he kind of didn't make a big deal of it, and he probably didn't really understand the significance of it, and actually, as you've expressed very clearly, that it can be completely deadly. What happened next? Because my experience of endo endometriosis which I don't have it, but I'm surrounded by women that do. And obviously we get daily messages on the Happy Vagina feed about women who have it. And it's a hugely hot topic at the moment because women are fed up with the fact that it's not being taken seriously. But often for me, what I've seen happen is women bear the pain bear the pain bear the pain or bear whatever the symptom is and first of all they think that they're normal to having the pain then they work oh, out yeah. that maybe it's not normal then they go to their doctors and then by the time they're diagnosed actually when the pain is that severe often one of the first things that they are fast-tracked towards finally there's no fast track in it until right at the end is to have an operation to remove some of it how long did it take for you to get an operation to support you?
0: Yeah. So I was getting mostly operations on my fibroids, which just kept growing back. So that was a process, you know, and before you take a fibroid out, you have to have a surgery before called an embolization, which they cut off the blood supply of of the fibroid. So that when they take the fibroid out, it doesn't bleed everywhere and all that stuff. And it's much easier. So I was having fibroids removed like every two years. It was just kind of And I think that's very much stress related. You know, we all hold hold our stress in different areas and we all have an Achilles heel, you know, of just like one part of our body that just causes us issues. And mine was just like my gynecological (laughs) issues. And, and I definitely think that my, um, divorce kind of caused (laughs) my endometriosis and fibroids. I mean, stress is the root cause of so many different diseases, like don't underestimate it. And, um, so anyway, getting back to this surgeries, I had one massive surgery for endometriosis. What I will say though, is that my surgeon, he kind of saw it mentioned it and then didn't really do anything about it because I was relatively asymptomatic. You know, I had bad periods and very very heavy periods to the point where I was anemic. You know, I was having to take uh, iron pills and iron drinks and all this stuff. And this is why I know about tampons and pads because I would wear a tampon and a super pad and whatever. It, w- it was it was brutal because I was just bleeding, um, and and the pain was bad. But I think, like you said, like women have a high threshold for pain. And I just learned to live with it. And I remember just like, sometimes I would walk around and I would just have to stop all of a sudden because I would have a massive cramp. And then I would just continue walking. You know, (laughs) it was just like fine. You know, I never missed work because of my period or anything. But I think I I do have a high tolerance for for pain. And one thing um, I will say though, is that I didn't do anything about my endometriosis for a long time, just because I was relatively asymptomatic. What I didn't know though, what my surgeon didn't tell me, my gynecologist, didn't tell me is that it can grow and it spreads. It can go to your brain. And that's why there are stages of endometriosis, stage one, stage two, all the way up to five. And if it grows so severely, it basically fuses all of your organs together with the uterine lining. And it's called frozen pelvis because everything is just stuck together, like one big giant mass and there's no movement. That's what I had. Mm. So if I had had surgery on my endometriosis years before, I would have had a much easier, much simpler surgery. And it would have been so much more in check. Like I have endometriosis on my diaphragm now. And there have been cases where it's gone all over women's lungs. Like there's a famous case in the New York times have this section called diagnosis where they basically like send out like these things like, somebody's got this. We don't know what it is. And basically this girl's or this, this woman's lung collapsed every month. And they realized it was collapsing because she had endometriosis all over her lungs. And whenever she had her period, it would cause a flare up and then her lung would collapse. So it's a very dangerous disease. What drove me finally to surgery was I was doing, um, you know, I always had my blood checked, is that endometriosis causes a certain antigen in your blood to skyrocket. It's called the CA125. Um, antigen. It's called the cancer antigen. It's supposed to be in your in the 30s. Mine was 600, 700, 800. And it can cause ovarian cancer or some type of gynecological cancer. So my, my doctor was like, you have to get this taken care of because this is not a good indicator, which is what drove me to surgery. But, and I have to tell you, my, I was going to one of the best gynecological sur- surgeons here, if not the best, on Harley Street. And he's like, we can't deal with this in this country. He just threw his hands up. He's like, go to the United States, go to New York. You have insurance there, just, just do it there. And I went to the top. I did a lot of research. You know, I'm from a family of doctors, so I'm a little bit more well versed medically than, than most. I did all this research. I found the top endometriosis surgeon and gynecologist in New York City. And they could not believe what they saw after my MRI. And they called my doctors because they didn't believe me because they could not believe. He said, people who have your MRI are crippled. They cannot function in life and they couldn't believe it. So scheduled surgery pretty much almost immediately. They're like, we have to get this out of you. you see, one, two, five levels are way too high. I ended up having an eight hour surgery with four different specialists in the surgery room. I had gynecological surgeon, vascular surgeon, gastrointestinal surgeon, and neurologists all in the room to operate and help unfuse all of my organs from being oh. fused together to taking them all apart and an eight hour surgery, you know, um, He was exhausted afterwards, but got all of it out or most of it out. I still have remnants, but really successful. And
1: I'm happy to say that I haven't had a flare up since. Will you you know, you haven't because you're getting checked or because you said that you were quite asymptomatic. Yeah,
0: no, but I, I I would feel it. Yeah. Like, like you would, you would feel pain. You would. Yeah.
1: But that's quite a story. You've mentioned that it's now on your diaphragm. Yeah. So they removed it or they didn't remove. You said, and I now have it on my diaphragm. So they didn't, they didn't
0: want to touch my diaphragm because it was like in a different area. They didn't know it was there, but when they look around, they saw it a few spots, you know, um, but I haven't had a flare up. Like I would feel that, you know, they actually, like my surgeons, like you might want to wear a medical bracelet if, if in case like you have shortness of breath or sometimes he's like, it'll be fine, but
1: I'm okay. Yeah, no, I'm fine. I know that this is going to sound really basic, but for anyone that's listening that God bless you, doesn't have endometriosis, but actually wants to know when you say it's on my diaphragm, what is your understanding of what is on your diaphragm? So I have lesions, so
0: I actually saw the pictures. They look like like dark gray blobs on a white matter, so it just kind of looks like a few or several spots of um, endometrial lining that is on my diaphragm, and I get more up there, it'll um, cause a hole, which isn't good um you know, so just just to he's like you know just make sure that. If you ever have shortness of breath or collapse long, just tell them that. And, <laughs> but yeah.
1: You've had extraordinary, extraordinarily good healthcare support, which not everyone has access to. Yes. Even though you've got that and you've mm-hmm. had that support and you've had this major operation, are you fear free around it? Or does it, is it like having a drawing pin in your shoe? Are you still frightened about what might happen? Not extremely.
0: I would say, I mean, I have friends who have battled cancer and that you never feel free of. Like they're, they're always like, you always feel like that can come back. I don't feel that tethered to it. I know it's there, but because I don't feel it and I would feel like a dull aching in my lower back. And that's kind of like, apparently there was a big, they call it like chocolate cysts is the term of where the endometrial lining built up so much. It created a, um, kind of like a a tumor almost of of just like a blood clot, you know, or a a blood tumor. And he said like he got most of that out, if not all of it. So I'm pretty confident. I mean, you never know, but, and I I go in for checkups yearly. So, so far, knock on woods,
1: it's all good. And I eat well. And I know that it's had an impact on your on your fertility. Mm-hmm. were you? You mentioned that you had an ectopic pregnancy, which if anyone listening doesn't know what that is because they haven't experienced it or they're only just starting their journey with their reproductive health, they're young. I would just say to you, without wanting to be condescending, it's when the egg that is fertilized starts to grow in the fallopian tube rather than up in the... The uterus, the womb, uterus womb, same thing, where it should be and it and it and it can be actually very, very serious. so we're really grateful that Judy's here with us today. However, it has had a massive impact on your fertility this journey, and you've not just the endometriosis and the and the fibroids, but also the marriage breakup and you've you've actually gone for egg freezing. Haven't you?
0: Yeah. I did that while I was getting divorced just because I was like, I just need to buy myself some time, you know? And I I did it twice. Um, that's a journey in itself. That's, um, not fun.
1: Was it a big decision for you to decide to, so you say it as though it's easy, and uh, because you're now on the other side, so you've 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 lost the person that you thought was the love of your life, and you're you're basically looking at a future where you want to give yourself the time to meet someone else without feeling like you have to, you know, rush it, and you're looking at the clock and the biological clock and your history with your gynecological and reproductive health. Do so you decide? to go and get egg freezing. But was that actual decision to do egg freezing easy? Because for me, I haven't done it, but I can't tell you I think I lost two years of my life trying to decide whether to do it or not. And part of that for me was about the how expensive it was. And it is expensive, but it's also the time commitment. And it's also, it's so many other things. Was it a difficult decision for you? It was, but at the same time, I knew I had to do it.
0: You know, I I was an engineering major and I come from a family of science, you know, mom, chemist, father, physician, family of doctors, you know, cousins in pharmaceuticals and stuff like that. So I knew I had to do it. Um, It was just time is not on your side as women, unfortunately. So just a black and white issue, I was just like, I'm I'm just going to do it. Uh, And the price is high, but it's a small price to pay for. An option. Freedom. Yeah. Freedom. Yeah. And if you think about like other things you can sacrifice in your life to have this option. And I've had a lot of friends um, who have spent more, multiples more on IVF, you know, who would wish that they had frozen their eggs when they were younger, um, because their, their egg quality is is not great when they're older. Um, I mean, it's not a perfect science. You could freeze. 20 eggs and none of them work. So there is a gamble. The attrition rate is high. So you're not guaranteeing an option. Um, you, you have an option that might not work actually. It's all about statistics, but it does buy you a bit of a better percentage of having that option later.
1: By the time you went to your doctors to get tested, how potent was your reproductive
0: health? So I had actually, when I had that dermoid cyst, I had lost most of one of my ovaries. So I really only had one ovary, which is fine. But when it comes to collecting eggs, you're only working off of one ovary and not two. But that that one ovary luckily was, was very robust and healthy. Um, so
1: how many follicles did it have in? Do you remember?
0: Oh, I had a lot. I can't, I can't remember. I did this like over 10 years ago.
1: So that's good. Thank God. Thank God. Yeah. If you only, I'm so sorry that you lost.
0: Apparently like you don't need all of your ovary for it to be functioning. So part of it was there, but it was kind of, let's say like, like 40%, 30% functioning, but pretty much it, the the other ovary was, was the one that was producing the eggs. Yeah.
1: So you had, you had a good follicle count. I was fine.
0: I mean, I did this when I was 36, so I was much younger.
1: Good age to do it. Anyone that's listening, I went yeah. in at age 40. It was too late for me, really. I mean, it, maybe it wasn't. But anyway, I decided not to do it for many reasons. Yeah. 36 is a good... Age to go and get your eggs frozen, and then what was the process for you? Did you have to do injections or?
0: Oh yeah, I mean you should do it before you're 35, ideally before you're 35. Yeah. Okay. Good. Yeah, tip. yeah, definitely before you're 35. Once you hit 35, it's like it drops exponentially. But yes, depending on what your levels are, um, there. I think there are like maybe three different tracks, different drugs. No, none is better or worse than the other. They're just different for different people. Um, And uh, I was on one that was about two weeks, maybe two and a half weeks in total. The shots and everything are not fun. I'm not afraid of needles, though, so it didn't really bother me. But it does consume your life for those two and a half weeks or three weeks or whatever program you're on, though.
1: And you did this on your own.
0: I did, which is a process because when you're sitting there in these waiting rooms, because you're just waiting so much, everybody has a partner there with them. I'm I'm sure it's much different now, but I was always there on my own. And so then you're like, just like sitting there, like, why the hell am I here? Like, why am I on this journey? Why am I in this situation? Like, why me, why me, why this, you know? Mm
2: -hmm. So
0: it's a mental journey as well. Um, It's not fun. You're waking up at odd hours in the middle of the night to do injections. Um, Mm -hmm. They give you this big, like yellow, like sharps garbage bin, you know, that is full of needles by the end of it, like full. So yeah, you just have to learn to inject yourself.
1: Who did support you through it, Judy? Did you, friends who, or did, are you a, are you a (laughs) a bit of a lone wolf with things like this? Did you just kind of knuckle down and get
0: on with it? I mean, I kind of knuckled down and got on with it, you know, I just kind of just Mm -hmm. did it. I mean, Yeah, I have, I have a lot of great friends here too, but, um, I mean, it's nobody that is going to like help me do an injection or something, you know, like I'm sure they would, but that's Mm. something I probably just do, do on my own. You know,
1: I meant with your mental health, I meant who are the people who you could have a cry with Uh, because it's lonely. I mean, I found it lonely going to look into it on my own. It was really, um. Was a thing. It, and it, and Absolutely, it, it's like okay, I, I'm already kind of in pain that I need to do this, and now I'm like doubly in pain that I'm needing to do it on my own. Hundred
0: percent, definitely, definitely. Um, I mean, I've, I've, I'm, you know, my sister, sisters are awesome, you know, which, which is great. Um and I have some yeah, really good friends. I was in therapy for a long time with, with, with my divorce. I wasn't going through therapy when I did my egg freezing, but um, I think it's, it's very much a healthy thing. My father is a retired psychiatrist, so I'm very familiar with the mental health world and how important it is. It's actually, I think it's more important than, than physical health.
1: Judy, what's your favorite thing to do to support your own mental health? do you have anything that is in your life on a day-to-day basis that you do to support your mental health? Or what would you say is a thing that helped you through that period?
0: I actually, I don't know. I don't know if this is a thing, but I, I, I really need my sleep and sleep makes me feel better. It, It just, I, I, I think it's, um, I really feel that it's the third pillar of health because I feel like crap if I don't sleep and I feel mm. better after I've had a cry. I usually fall asleep after cry. I just feel more refreshed and a bit better. Mm. I, I mean, like maybe during my divorce, I was probably sleeping too much. It was maybe a bit of an escape, but, um, but, um, definitely that, but also exercise I think really helps. Um, And, you know, even if it's just a walk or a bit of a run, I play tennis. Um, I think that that's really nice. And I don't know, I think also just a great night out with just like one or two girlfriends really talking, throwing everything on the table. Um, you know, and I'm lucky enough to have girlfriends that there's no judgment. We're a thousand percent honest we help each other. We feel each other's pain. We feel, we feel each other's happiness. You know, there, there's no mean girl stuff or anything going on. So it's, it's nice. Yeah.
1: You haven't mentioned cooking since becoming, I trained as a yoga teacher. I trained as a yoga teacher once I used had this really huge yoga practice. It was like my thing. It was my meditation. And then I thought, I oh, know I'm just going to train as a yoga teacher because that felt like the next step in terms of my personal practice development. And as soon as I started to train as a yoga teacher, I didn't want to do yoga anymore. Has becoming a chef (laughs) taken the meditation and joy out of cooking for you? Or have you never really enjoyed cooking? Like, has it been much more about building the business? You have an amazing London-based Korean restaurant, fast food restaurant, could I say? It is. I'm, I'm doing quick serves now, yeah. Called...
0: Soulbird. Plug it, plug it, plug it. We're in Shepherd's Bush in the Westfield Mall and also Canary Wharf in the Jubilee Place Mall.
1: So are you a chef or a businesswoman or both? And do does cooking make you feel enlightened and peaceful? Oh
0: definitely. Uh cooking, definitely. And also travel. Um and uh and Pilates. You're into yoga and I I'm very much into Pilates. But I think um uh, right now, because I, I'm doing fast casuals, I'm not cooking anymore. So I'm more of a business person more, but I do do pop-ups like like last night I, I did a pop-up at the Tottenham Hotspurs and and so I was cooking uh, you know like six courses for super VIPs. Um I, I travel the world doing um chefing events and pop-ups.
1: So when you cook, does it make you feel peaceful in your mind? Because one of the things I just wanna round up with is this, this thing that you've taught me, which is that Korean food is kind of like Jamaican soul food in the sense that you very much use food to heal. Yeah, definitely. And you mentioned earlier on that there are trigger foods around endometriosis. What were those that you found along your journey? Um, I mean, it's, it's pretty,
0: obvious in, in my food, but basically processed foods, sugar, any processed sugars, um, you know, and that includes all types of sugars, like alcohol, <laughs> you know, wine, beer, all of that stuff. Um, so just try to stay away for any of that. I, I in general, white foods is kind of a rule of thumb. So processed flour, white bread, you know, dairy can be inflammatory also. Um, red meats also, going back to the white, you know, like white sugars and any of that stuff is just, is not good for you.
1: Does white rice fall into that category? Because I think that in Korean food, uses a lot of white rice. Not, I don't see brown rice. Now now there's tons. Oh yeah, no, Korea
0: Korea has a ton of brown rice, and multi-grain rice. Uh, we we have 19 grain rices, 25 grain rices that are full of beans and pulses and everything. But white food in general, and this is this is obviously there are exceptions, but you know, when you talk about like white flour, white rice, sugar, no nutrients. Full of calories, and you don't want to eat or consume empty calories. Everything that you eat should have nutritional value.
1: Okay, so white rice is also out of the window. So those are the things that you should avoid. Can you share either for you personally the things that you found, or that are actually generally believed to be the foods that are good for? I'm going go to go two. Going to ask two things here: one, endometriosis, and two, our fertility.
0: Ah, okay. Um, endometriosis is things that, that you would suspect are good. So lots of vegetables, green leafy vegetables, um, fish, Mm -hmm. things with, with, with a lot of omegas, um, and also um, anything that is anti-inflammatory. So I was drinking a lot of turmeric juices. Um, you know, putting turmeric in teas. Things that are, are just just easy to digest and full of nutrients and have good good fats in it. Um, you know, like 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 the nice oily fish. Fertility is kind of along the same route, I would say. Um, but you also want to make sure that you're getting enough protein. Make sure that you are are. Um, eating and and drinking, you know, I mean, during my IVF or not IVF, but like egg freezing, which is essentially same as IVF. Like they make sure they want you to have enough protein every single day, you know, so enough that, you know, make your eggs grow and everything. And it's, and, and it's hard to get that much protein. So this is where you really have to know food. You know, if you can't eat so much, um, fish or seafood, go to your, you know, beans and pulses, um, chicken, things like that. But, but, but like lean meats, again, avoid anything processed. And that includes bacons and prosciutto's of the world, um, You can you can have dairy if you can tolerate it. You know, um, a lot of people can't tolerate dairy. This is also where you have to look at your epigenetics and your genetic profile. Like I can't tolerate dairy very well because my ancestors didn't eat dairy, whereas Mika, like your ancestors, I don't know exactly your ancestry, but they probably can. You know, Um, so it depends where you are from in the world, what you can digest better. I have friends who can't digest rice at all. I can digest rice beautifully, you know, but I'm not great with 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 white wheat pasta.
1: So does somebody? to go and get a blood test to work out their epinegetics? Or could they literally think about what their ancestors were surviving on and make a pretty good judgment that if rice was part of the staple food, as you've described in Korea, they're probably going to be okay. I mean, I'm Irish and Swedish, so I think potatoes oh, are probably quite good for me. Absolutely. No, hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. And also you
0: had to pay attention to your body, you know, really be in tune to your body. If you don't feel well after you eat something, it's probably a reason why, you know, I was just getting so gassy after I consumed a lot of milk and then like cheese and things like this. I was like, oh, this doesn't do well. You know, but I, I don't have a problem with rice or tofu, soy, eggs, things, mm. things like whereas I have friends who can't eat eggs at all. I don't know why, you know,
1: um, or rice or um or butter, you know, things. But um yeah. talking about protein and fertility, I think while you were on your journey, you created a protein power, not powder, protein, power, fertility smoothie. And I'm now going to plug you. Can you tell us what was in it, Uh, how that came about?
0: Gosh, I had to think,
1: um, I mean, I created a whole
0: series of smoothies, a whole series. I, I think I created like like eight different ones, so depending on on which one. But some of them are, are, are green juices. Some of them have, have peanut butter in them um, and banana and and honey. Some of the soy milk is is a good source of protein. Um, if you don't like soy milk, um, pea milk is actually very good also because these nut milks, even though they're nice, or oat milk have zero to very little protein in them. But pea milk and soy milk um, have just as much as regular cow's milk. Some pea milk doesn't taste good though. So make sure that you find a brand that is actually um, tasty. Um, but yeah, no, but we created a whole bunch of them and they were made by me in conjunction with an integrated medicine doctor. So they're medically approved too. So they're not, cause I'm not a medical doctor. Like I make it taste good. Okay. And then the doctor, you know, I work with her and she tells me kind of like what to put in it. And I adjust the quantities, make it taste palatable. So they taste great as well as they are all medically approved.
1: But the quantities of what, it's not just food. Oh no, no it
0: is food, but it's, but sometimes like if they're if the balance, if it's too acidic or it's too sweet, or there's too much peanut butter. So I make it, I make the ratios of all the different ingredients
1: combine in a way that it's balanced so they taste yummy. Hang on a second. So listen, there's you and this like really super clever doctor, and you're like, it needs two teaspoons of peanut butter to make it taste good, and they're like, you can only have one, Judy, who wins? <laughs> well, it's, it's, a, I mean, so, taste over medicine, which do you choose? We've gone back to the binary. <laughs>
0: yeah. So, so there is a balance, you know, but there are things that we can do. So if she's some, if she says something like we need to get six grams of protein in this, you know, I'll say, okay, we'll have more pea milk in it. We're going to put less peanut butter, you know, or we'll put more peanut butter. And then in order to offset it, we'll put in, um, a bit of banana to like, you know, um, um, sweeten it up or we put some um almonds in it or something, you know, like shade, or flaxseed or something. so it all, all, all different types of, mm. of of things. yeah, I, I don't
1: I don't need protein shakes for my fertility, but I'm gonna be going and trying them all.
0: These are good for you in any way. Like it's not just for fertility. they're 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 they're, they're gonna do your body good no matter when or why you drink it. Yeah. I mean, give it to men. It's fine.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so eat the soul bird followed by the smoothie. Yeah. Uh-huh. We're running out of time. Sadly, Judy, I just have a couple more questions for you. And the first one is when you are down physically or mentally, what is the dish that you make for yourself to boost yourself? Oh gosh. Or to nurture yourself. It doesn't have to be to like Chazam. What's the thing? What's your comfort food? My favorite,
0: it's this classic Korean, um, stew and it's a spicy, soft, silken tofu stew with seafood. Yeah. And it's that like soft silken tofu and this spicy broth with just like, it's with some, you know, prawns and some mussels and clams, and that with like a bowl of rice is just my heaven.
1: Mm, brown rice, brown rice, multi or black rice. The black rice is even better for you. And my final question, the question we end all of our podcasts with, which is, what makes your vagina happy today, Judy? June? Today or in general? <laughs> I I mean, I
0: think, um, some fun, loving play with my boyfriend. (laughs) And, um, I think just, um, you know, I, it's taking care of it. See your gynecologist regularly do your pap smear, keep it healthy. Healthy vagina is a happy vagina. You don't want to get cervical cancer. You don't want to get anything. So definitely go for your pap smear.
1: Brilliant. Thank you so much, Judy Jew. It's been such insightful and fun. And for two women who've both almost definitely got ADHD, I think we did well. I think so. This went by so quickly. I'm Mika Simmons. That was Businesswoman and Chef Judy Ju. This is the Happy Vagina podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And I will see you next week. If you enjoyed this episode, Please do follow, subscribe and review. It helps others to find our podcast. And look out for our weekly videos going up on YouTube and Instagram at The Happy Vagina. Thanks for listening to The Happy Vagina podcast produced by Pineapple Audio Production. And don't forget, if you're thinking about freezing your eggs, check out ABC IVF for low-cost fertility preservation. Take control of your fertility now by booking an assessment. With ABC IVF, so you can better understand your fertility health and plan for your future. Just go to www.abcivf.co.uk and book your fertility assessment now. That's www.abcivf.co.uk. How up?